the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Carol Kent, her latest book, He Holds My Hand, Experiencing God's Presence and Protection. And given the circumstances of her family, which we'll discuss uh, this devotional has even greater depth than you might imagine. Carol Kent will join us later this hour. Hey, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Well, the question is, how did the United States government come to turn its vast surveillance powers upon the 2016 presidential campaign of the party out of power? Well, it appears that part of the answer arrived last night when the Washington Post reported, and I quote, the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee helped fund research that resulted in a now famous or infamous dossier containing allegations about President Trump's connections to Russia and the possible coordination between his campaign and the Kremlin. Pop, uh, people familiar with the matter are saying Mark E. Elias, a lawyer representing the Clinton campaign and the DNC, retained Fusion GPS, a Washington firm, to conduct the research. After that, Fusion GPS hired dossier author Christopher Steele, a former British intelligence officer with ties to the FBI and the U.S. intelligence community, according to those people who spoke on condition of anonymity. Well, the facts are reported by the Post last night bear a remarkable resemblance to the scenario that was sketched out in July by the journal's Kimberly Strassel. Here's a thought. What if it was the Democratic National Committee or Hillary Clinton's campaign? What if that money flowed from a political entity on the left to a private law firm, to a fusion, to a British spook, and then to Russian resources or sources? Thanks to the dogged House Intelligence Chairman, uh, Committee Chairman, Devin Nunez, uh, subpoena of Fusion GPS bank records, those involved in this effort which seem to fall uh, outside of what is considered typical opposition research, which happens all the time in political campaigns. Uh, Perhaps they uh, sought to manage its release, but the New York Times is a little less kind than the Washington Post in describing the Perkins Coy lawyer at the center of this uh, secret effort to smear Donald Trump. Now, earlier this year, Mr. Elias had denied that he had possessed the dossier before the election. Anita Dunn, a veteran Democratic operative working with Perkins Coy, uh, said on Tuesday that Mr. Elias was certainly familiar with some of, but not all of the information in the dossier. But she said he didn't have and hadn't seen the full document, nor was he involved in pitching it to reporters. And Mr. Elias was not at liberty to confirm Perkins Coy as the client at that point, Ms. Dunn said. Well, Brian Fallon, who served as a spokesperson for the Clinton campaign uh, yesterday, wrote to, on Twitter that he did not know that Mr. Steele had been working on behalf of the Clinton campaign before the election. If I had, I would have volunteered to go to Europe and try to help him, Mr. Fallon wrote. Well, Mr. Fallon tells a similar story to the Washington Post, and I'm quoting, the first I learned of Christopher Steele or saw any dossier uh, was after the election, he went on to say, but if I had gotten handed it last fall, I would have had no problem passing it along and urging reporters to look into it. Well, the Post notes that the numerous general 
generate uh, rumors rather generated by the Clinton uh, campaign effort against Mr. Trump were uh, circulating in Washington as early as the summer of 2016. The Times reports that the DNC and the Clinton campaign paid Perkins Coy more than $12 million during the 2016 election campaign. Even for uh, such well-funded political operations as the Clintons and the DNC, that's a lot of money. Well, certainly they expected a return on that investment. Well, why weren't they uh, use, uh, using that information against Mr. Trump? It would have been a killer argument if they uh, actually had the goods to show that the opposing candidate was part of an effort to make Russia great again. Well, the only reasonable conclusion, at least by some, is that they didn't believe it and wouldn't stand behind it publicly. But that doesn't mean Mrs. Clinton and the DNC couldn't still generate the hoped-for return on investment. If they could use it privately to convince friends in the Obama administration to turn America's formidable intelligence apparatus on their political opponents, perhaps something useful could be discovered. Hmm. Well, the Washington Post, the New York Times uh, outing individuals. And the question is, uh, before jumping to conclusions, I suppose, is whether or not this falls outside of what is typical in a a nationwide campaign uh, operation um, uh, opposition research. Now, we know that the FEC is questioning whether or not. Uh, the Clinton campaign. In fact, they're accusing the campaign and the DNC of violating campaign finance uh, finance laws, rather, with the dossier payments. So that will be a part of a larger investigation into uh, what all of this may or may not um, mean. And of course, President Trump earlier today, never missing an opportunity to speak up in a wide ranging sparring session with reporters this afternoon, blasted Hillary Clinton over new revelations about her campaign, helping to fund the salacious anti-Trump dossier last year, calling the project a disgrace and claiming the tables have turned on Democrats over the Russia hoax. Well, the the, uh, dossier generated the initial investigation, whether or not the tables are turned remains to be seen. But he went on to say they're embarrassed by it. But I think it's a disgrace. He told reporters before uh, heading to Texas for a briefing on Hurricane Harvey recovery efforts and a Republican fundraiser. It's a very sad commentary on politics in this country. Well, there have been a long running sad commentary on politics in this country that predated this particular thing. But um, it is added to a very long and growing list. Well, the Washington Post first reported on the connections, uh, which uh, were confirmed by Fox News. Uh, Trump, though, repeated, uh, repeatedly said Wednesday that the information only came out because the court uh, the court case would have revealed it amid a series of Russia-related controversies that have Democrats, at least for now, on defense. He suggested the allegations of Russian collusion with his campaign have boomeranged and are hitting, hurting the Democrats. It may be a little early to make that kind of a pronouncement, but it is a perspective worth considering. Meanwhile, Michael Goodwin points out that uh, the Trump dossier was Clinton's dirtiest political trick. And if you have followed the uh, Clinton's history over time, it's not altogether surprising. And so the worm turns, he writes in the New York Post. Make that worms. Uh, Just as key congressional panels open new probes into the still smoking debris of last year's election, the revelation that Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC paid as much as nine million dollars. I think the figure is actually higher for the discredited Russian dossier on Donald Trump flips the collusion script on its head. Now it's Democrats turn in the barrel. The explosive report in the Washington Post, he writes, goes a long way to explaining how the dossier was so widely spread among political reporters during the election. The Clinton camp must have passed it out like Halloween candy to its media uh, handmaidens to continue uh, to follow the, uh, the story and determine what's actually there or if there is any more there. 
um, he suggests you follow the uh, follow the money. Well, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee claims he obtained a smoking gun email that proves that the uh, previous Justice Department prevented settlement payouts from going to conservative-leaning organizations, even as liberal groups were awarded money and the Department of Justice officials denied picking and choosing recipients. It is not every day in congressional investigations that we find a smoking gun, Representative Bob Goodlot said, Republican out of Virginia, on Tuesday. Here we have it. While Eric Holder was U.S. Attorney General, the Justice Department allowed prosecutors to strike agreements compelling big companies to give money to outside groups not connected in their uh, cases to meet settlement burdens. Republican lawmakers long have decried those payments as a slush fund that boosted liberal groups and the Trump DOJ into the practice earlier this year. But internal Justice Department emails released Tuesday by Goodlot indicated that not only were officials involved in determining what organizations would get the money, but also Justice Department officials may have intervened to make sure the settlements did not go to conservative groups. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. But first, we need to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. Carol Kent will join us in our next couple of segments. She's the author most recently of He Holds My Hand, Experiencing God's Presence and Protection. We'll try to get an update, too, on how her family is doing. We're talking about internal Justice Department emails that were released yesterday by um, uh, Representative Bob Goodlot out of uh, Virginia, Republican, uh, indicating that not only were officials in the Obama Justice Department involved in determining what organizations would get the money, but also Justice Department officials may have intervened to make sure that settlements didn't go to conservative groups. Uh, in one uh, such email in July of 2014, a senior Justice Department official expressed concerns about what groups would receive settlement money from Citigroup, saying they didn't want money going to a group that does conservative property rights legal services. So the Justice Department, despite their uh, uh, saying that they were not picking and choosing, doing just that. Well, concerns include a not allowing city to pick a statewide intermediary like Pacific Legal Foundation, um, uh, which does conservative property rights legal services. The official whose name is redacted in the email wrote under the title of acting senior counselor for access to justice which is uh, certainly an appropriate uh, moniker given the uh, the email. The official added that we are more likely to get the right result from state bar association affiliated entity. Well, the Pacific Legal Foundation responded to the email release uh, by telling uh, news outlets that it believes permanent reforms to prevent such abuse are needed. We are uh, are flattered that the previous administration would be concerned enough about our success vindicating individual liberty and property rights to prevent settlement funds from making their way to Pacific Legal Foundation. Stephen Anderson, the CEO, wrote in a statement in response to this so-called smoking gun. Goodlot, who is sponsoring the Stop Settlement Slush Funds Act of 2017, I just love how they name these things, disclosed the emails during a speech on the House floor, taking aim at uh, then-Associate Attorney General Tony West. Aiding their political allies was only the half of it, Goodlot said. The evidence of the Obama Department of Justice abuse of power shows that Tony West's team went out of its way to exclude conservative groups. The documents indicate West played an active role in helping certain organizations obtain settlement information. Can you explain to Tony the best way to allocate some money to an organization of our choosing? 
Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General Elizabeth Taylor wrote in one November 2013 email. Groups who received funding also expressed appreciation for West's efforts, according to the emails. Now that it has been more than 24 hours for us uh, to try and digest the Bank of America settlement, I would like to discuss ways we might want to recognize and show appreciation for the Department of Justice and specifically Associate Attorney General Tony West, wrote Charles Dunlap, Executive Director of the Indiana Bar in August of 2014 in an email. Dunlop wrote that West, by all accounts, was the one person most responsible for the interest on lawyers' trust accounts group receiving money. One person, Bob LeClaire, responded to Dunlap's email by saying, Frankly, uh, I would be willing to have us uh, build a statue of West, and then we could bow down to this statue each day after we get our $200,000. West, who now works as an executive vice president at Pacifico, or rather PepsiCo, did not immediately respond uh, to requests for uh, clarification. In 2015, Jeffrey Graber, who oversaw the Justice Department's big bank settlement, told Goodlot during a congressional hearing that the department did not want to be in the business of picking and choosing which organizations may or may not receive any funding under the agreement, end quote. But internal Department of Justice documents tell a very different story, Goodlot said yesterday. They show that contrary to Graber's sworn testimony, and again, this is under oath, the donation provision um, were structured to aid Obama administration's political friends and exclude conservative groups. Even before the release of Tuesday's emails, Republicans had blasted these settlements as a slush fund for favored groups. And that investigation moves forward. Meanwhile, the Pentagon says the country should uh, should stick with mandatory registration for military draft. And it's advocating a requirement for women to sign up for the first time in the nation's history. The recommendations are contained in the Defense Department report to Congress that serves as a starting point for a commission examining military, national and public service. Congress ordered the the, uh, Pentagon report in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, completed it in the early months of the Trump administration. Currently, only male citizens and residents aged 18 to 25 are required to register for a, uh, a pace of about two million each year. Women, whom the government has never ordered to sign up, would add 11 million to the selection service system database in short order, the report says. President Carter restarted draft registration in 1980. Now, that's different, of course, from the draft itself. This is registering in the event that the draft were, in fact, reinstated. But uh, President Carter reinstated the draft registration in 1980 as a message to Soviet leaders. Congress exempted women because they did not perform combat. That has since changed. Today, women fly combat aircraft. They serve on combat ships, are the early stages of competing for direct ground combat jobs such as infantry and special operations. It appears that, for the most part, expanding registration for the draft to include women would enhance further the benefits presently associated with the selective service system, the Pentagon report states. A gender-neutral registration, the report says, would convey the added benefit of promoting fairness and equality not previously possible in the process and would uh, comport the military selective service system with our nation's touchstone values of fair and equitable treatment and equality of opportunity. 
I'm not sure the American people are ready for women to be drafted, but that remains to be seen. Again, we're talking about registration for the Selective Service. Congress came close last November to enacting a law that would require women to sign up with Republican and Democrats to backing. An amendment cleared the House Armed Services Committee, but Republican leaders scuttled the move and instead created a commission to conduct a two-year examination, pushing the decision back two years. The Pentagon report titled Report on the Purpose and Utility of Registration system for military selective service makes two other significant findings. First, there is no foreseeable reason to restart conscription to augment the 2.1 million all-volunteer active and reserve force. The Department of Defense currently has no operational plans that envision mobilization of a level that would require conscription, the Pentagon says. Even in the face of sustained conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Department of Defense has maintained its ability to recruit and retrain a, a professional volunteer force without resorting to a draft. Second, the report says registration should stay because of a number of benefits. For one, it sends a strong message to world adversaries that, if necessary, the U.S. can conduct a mass mobilization. Eliminating military selective service could be interpreted by adversaries of the United States as a potential weakness, thus emboldening existing or potential enemies. Of course, it hasn't seemed to, this is according to the Pentagon, hasn't had much impact on North Korea. But the report quotes Ronald Reagan, who referred to registration as an insurance policy. The huge database is also a boon to military recruiters who can access the names and addresses uh, for leads. Registration empowers America's young men. It says the voluntary act of registration by a young man or around his uh, on or around his 18th birthday has been and will continue to be an opportunity for young American men and male immigrants to consider deliberately a uh, future of military service and to act accordingly, the report says. Last month, 11 former government officials and public service leaders took oaths to serve on the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service. The panel's chairman is former Representative Joseph Heck, Nevada Republican, a physician and an actively uh, drilling Army Reserve uh, Brigadier General. One of the commission's objectives is to find uh, ways to encourage military service. Greater portions of the population have no direct military contact, either by serving themselves or by having relatives who have served and certainly by um, reinstating, uh, or I should say instating, women to register for the draft would have the same impact on the other half of the country. Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United States, was suddenly evacuated today from a U.N. camp in South Sudan after violence and looting broke out during a political demonstration. The uh, U.N. ambassador, who's in the middle of a three-country visit in Africa, left the camp as several hundred protesters opposing President uh, Salva Kiir approached. A spokesman for the U.S. mission to the U.N. uh, told Fox News the protesters uh, became upset that Haley was not able to meet with them due to time constraint, according to the U.N., um, a report shortly after she left the camp, which is meant for homeless and displaced residents. U.N. security guards fired tear gas into the crowd and more than 100 people who looted and destroyed a charity office operating there. An aid worker at the camp said frustration has been growing both inside and outside of South Sudan over the conflict that has killed tens of thousands of people and created Africans, Africa's largest uh, displacement of civilians since the Rwandan genocide in 1994. And they are still uh, recovering from the, those events um, some years ago. We are disappointed by what we are seeing. This is not what we thought we were investing 
uh, in, Haley said in remarks released later by the U.N., what we thought we were investing in was a free, fair society where people could be safe. And South Sudan is the opposite of that. Just before she left the camp, residents attempted to hand the ambassador a letter with their position on the current crisis. The U.N. said a petition was delivered before she left. However, so she did get the material uh, that they had intended to provide to her. By the way, the United States is South Sudan's South Sudan's largest donor and was instrumental in the country's creation since the country gained independence in 2011. The United States has given more than five billion dollars for humanitarian and developmental initiatives. According to the U.S. Embassy, South Sudan plunged into civil war in 2013, late in that year, and the country faces mass displacement, starvation, allegations of government corruption and war crimes. More than two million people have fled the country. As a consequence, coming up, we're going to talk with Carol Kent, author of He Holds My Hand, Experiencing God's Presence and Protection. Looking forward to catching up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When my next guest, Carol Kent's son, was sentenced to life in prison without parole, she was consumed with grief, sadness, and despair. She was distraught, wondering why God permitted this to happen. She had prayed for her son since he was a small child. He had been raised with biblical principles and daily prayer. And as she tried to make sense of everything, she couldn't help asking, where's God when it hurts so much? Well, in the middle of her sorrow, she turned to the place where she had always gone for comfort, God's word. She was desperate to hear God's voice, so she soon discovered that's the best way to um, for her to listen to his voice, and the best thing to do was to meditate on Scripture and then write out what she believed he was saying. She wrote it as if it was his prayer over her life, and it comforted her. It was as if he took her by the hand, as a father would, guide a child, and gently led her in the direction of unconditional love, renewed hope, and fresh faith. Well, her book, He Holds My Hand, is a page-per-day, 365-day devotional based on Scripture, written as if God the Father is speaking His words of comfort and protection directly over you. Well, Carol Kent is a best-selling author and a popular public speaker. She is a former radio uh, show co-host whose messages have been featured on Focus on the Family. She's been a keynote speaker at Women of Faith, Time Out for Women, and the Heritage Keepers Arena events, as well as a presenter at the Praise Gathering for Believers and Vision New England's Congress. In addition, she has also been featured at uh, many of the extraordinary women and women of joy arena events. She has explained or rather expanded her speaking opportunities internationally. She regularly appears on a wide variety of television and nationally syndicated radio broadcasts. And she is the president of Speak Up Speaker Services, uh, Christian Speakers Bureau and the founder and director of Speak Up Conference, a ministry committed to helping Christians develop their speaking, writing and leadership skills. She and her husband, Jean, have founded the nonprofit organizations Speak Up, uh, Speak Up, for Hope, which uh, benefits inmates and their families as well. We are delighted to have Carol Kent back, and we want to welcome you. Thank you so much, Georgine. It is always an honor to be on the air with you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you right at the beginning how your family is doing, but I'll, I'll wait for just a moment or two <laughs> and, uh, and ask you, He Holds My Hand was born out of the life-altering experience that I just briefly referenced that you and your husband endured. For listeners who aren't familiar with your story, will you share what happened within your family um, uh, for those who are not familiar? 
I certainly will. Uh, we raised an only child, Jason, and he's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. And soon after graduation, he met and married a previously married woman who had two adorable little girls, six-year-old Chelsea and three-year-old Hannah. And they had a, a beautiful first year, but it appeared that the biological father of the girls was about to get unsupervised visitation uh, among uh, repeated uh, reports of abuse, and these allegations were really upsetting to our son. And uh, we got a middle-of-the-night phone call telling us that our son had shot and killed his wife's first husband and that he was in the jail in Orlando. We went through two and a half years and seven postponements of his trial, and he was eventually convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole in the state of Florida. So, Georgine, I know what it's like to be a grieving parent and uh, to feel like your prayers are going unanswered and you wonder why did God allow this horrible thing to happen. And uh, we are now 18 years Mm. into this journey, and that's a long time. Our son is still incarcerated, but we are seeing God's blessing in the middle of devastating circumstances. We're watching him do amazing things through our son's ministry at a maximum security prison. And he's led Bible studies. He's taken over 700 men through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University course. Uh, He currently teaches a Bible study for men called Malachi Dads through the God Behind Bars program. And uh, he works with some of the newest, youngest inmates on the compound through a program called Youth Realm, where he does exercise programs with them. And as a Naval Academy graduate, he loves athletics. And he does that with the purpose of mentoring them and getting to talk to them about Jesus. So we know, in spite of this great sadness and, oh, how we still feel deep, pain for the family of the deceased, that God is at work in ways we may never understand until we get to heaven, but he, we know he is not wasting this great tragedy. Mm. Well, that's encouraging to hear. You began uh, in the middle of your sorrow. You turned to the place that you had gone for comfort before, and that is uh, into God's word. How difficult was that? And explain how that process began for you. Well, I soon discovered that uh, unlike the person I was before our son's arrest, that uh, I was no longer somebody who was feeling very capable and like a multitasker. I'm a firstborn of six preacher's kids, so I'm used to having life under control, and I'm used to having answers to questions. And suddenly, when I would try to read the Bible, I would find that there were so many tears in my eyes that it would blur in front of me, or I, I discovered I would read the same verse over and over again because my mind was not connecting as it normally did. And I think we have listeners that this afternoon who truly understand what that is like when they feel such stress that they can't concentrate well. And so I first discovered that it was the scripture I memorized before the crisis that God would use to speak to my heart. And then I began reading a single verse or just a couple of verses or a short passage. And uh, I, I was so 
desperate to hear what God wanted to teach me because I, I felt like my life was out of control, that I wasn't understanding the horrible circumstances that were there. But in my heart, because I'd walked with God for a long time, I knew that he was good and he was trustworthy. And so I would say, Lord, as I read this scripture, would you reveal to me what you are speaking into my life as a result of this scripture? And I began a daily practice of writing out what I believe to be God's prayer over my life as a result of his holy word. And uh, that became so encouraging to my heart. And I talked to the the editorial team at uh, Tyndale Publishing House about this, and uh, I love them because they're, they are Bible publishers. And uh, they worked with me, and they said, we believe this would be a great devotional, and that's how He Holds My Hand came about. And I pray that it will encourage every single Christian who picks it up to have a closer walk with the Lord as they listen to the Word of God daily. Each passage is written out, along with the prayer that comes based on that scripture. Each uh, each day's selection starts with a relevant quotation. It's followed by a prayer. It ends with a scripture verse or a passage that guides the uh, the the reader along to really consider to ponder what God's word uh, said. One of the things I really appreciated in your uh, introduction was that you made it very clear that the prayer that you uh, note here in each one of these daily devotions. Um, is as if God were praying over you, and you make a distinction between um, putting words in God's mouth and and God's word. Can you describe that distinction? Because I I respected the fact that you went to some lengths to to make uh, to clarify um, what you were writing, what you believed God was saying to your heart, and what God's word says. Well, we know as Christians that only the Word of God is absolute truth. And we know that we can bank on that. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so these paraphrased prayers are based on Scripture, and they are my words as I have listened to the Lord speaking into my life, but we want to emphasize the fact that it is the holy word of God that we need to have open right next to us. That's where we need to get our real food. Now, as you meditated on scripture and you wrote out what you believed God was saying to you, how did that exercise lead you to renewed hope in the face of what must have felt like a hopeless situation? How did that transform you in the midst of this very difficult circumstance? Well, one of the great things about the Word of God is that it is transformational in our lives. And uh, one day I was meditating on the Lord's Prayer, and I had been praying for a long time that God would give my son an eventual end-of-sentence state. And I would pray like that. I would say, Lord, you are the God of creation. I, I know that Jason has learned his lessons and that he would be a productive citizen outside of prison walls. Lord, would you please allow him to walk in freedom? And as I began to concentrate on the Word of God and the Lord's Prayer in the, in the Bible, all of a sudden those words, Thy will be done, jumped out at me, Georgine. And I realized I had been praying in the wrong way. You know, so many of us look Mm. to tell God what we want in answer to our prayers, instead of saying, Lord, if it is your will, 
Would you allow this to happen? And uh, as I was talking to my son one weekend, and, and we were talking about the fact that he had applied for the clemency process, and, and uh, this was a few years ago, and it had been turned down. It was just a, a rubber stamp denial. And it seemed that after we had collected all of these letters of recommendation for, from people who knew Jason's character and knew he, he would bless people outside of prison, that those letters weren't even read by, by the, the governor and his cabinet. And it just seemed like such a waste of time. And I remember walking in through the big double doors at the prison and I heard that uh, that clang as those do- those heavy mm. doors were closed behind me, and I was sobbing. And my son was on the other side, and I could see the light of Jesus in his eyes as I, I leaned over and I began to cry into his shoulders. And I said, honey, we had such expectations of what God would do, and so many people wrote on your behalf. And he said, mom, don't be discouraged. He said, if, if we had gotten a hearing at the clemency meeting, we might have thought it was because we had the best attorney. He said, we might have thought it was because we had the favor of politicians. But he said, Mom, the way this has happened, the only way I will ever walk in freedom again is when God says I've served enough time and I can serve him better on the outside than I can on the inside. And then he paused and he said, he said Mom, if that doesn't happen in this lifetime, life is short. He said, in an instant, we're, we're all home, we're all free and walking with Jesus. He said, this is just one chapter in our story. And one day we will all in freedom walk with Jesus. And I knew he was going to be okay. Mm. And God reminded me through that, that Lord's prayer that I am to pray, thy will be done. I am not to pray what I want to be the answer to my own prayer. I'm to ask God to have his will be done. The book is titled He Holds My Hand, Experiencing God's Presence and Protection. The book is published by Tyndale House. We're talking with Carol Kent, and we'll continue that conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Carol Kent. She is a the author of He Holds My Hand, Experiencing God's Presence and Protection, and writes from a place of pain, going to God's Word and finding there that He spoke to her. You mentioned that during this season that you... Um, spent more time just stopping, pausing, meditating as you read through God's Word. Um, why was that the case, and how did that impact how deeply the Word impacted you in this difficult circumstance? Well, Georgine, I tend to to really uh, set my goals every year, and sometimes I think when I would read through the Bible, I would go so fast that I really didn't digest what was in each chapter. And when my son was arrested, tried, and convicted for murder, I was suddenly so distraught that I couldn't read at that pace anymore. And I began to realize that slowly meditating on a single verse or a passage and then pausing and thinking about it and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal what he was speaking into my heart became such a precious discipline that I would never do it another way. And uh, then to just, uh, in my journal, write out what his, what I believed he was saying to me. And there, there were times when I just could sense 
sense his sweet presence through his word covering me. And what a joy it is to know that when we belong to him, that uh, he loves to speak to our hearts and he loves to to put in our hearts truths from his word that are transformational. And uh, we began to take scriptures uh, like from uh, from Proverbs 31 where it says, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. And I have a very compassionate husband, and I remember uh, that I noticed his pile of T-shirts was beginning to get smaller and smaller. He likes to wear black T-shirts. I said, what's happening to your shirts? I know dryers eat socks, but I didn't think they ate black T-shirts. He said, you'll find out soon enough. And uh, the the rules at the prison change frequently. And uh, they had a new rule saying women couldn't wear sleeveless blouses to visit inmates. And I was standing in line with my husband, and usually that's a very long line, and we saw a woman turned away, and she was sobbing. And sure enough, she had on a sleeveless blouse. And suddenly I noticed my husband, Gene, had disappeared from where he was standing with me in the line, and I saw him emerge from our trunk carrying a black t-shirt he took it to the woman he said here ma'am put this on and go to the front of the line and have a wonderful visit with your loved one and he came back to where i was standing i said so that's what's been happening to your t-shirts he looked down he said it's my ministry well georgina (laughs) a month later i was speaking in elkhart lake wisconsin at a women's conference and two weeks later there was a big box on my front porch i opened it up and it was filled with black t-shirts and there was a note in the top from a woman who said, Carol, I recently heard you talk about your husband sharing a black T-shirt with a woman at the prison. She said, I work for a company that makes T-shirts, and I want you to use this box of black T-shirts toward your husband's ministry through his trunk distribution program. I hope it blesses some people who are visiting their loved ones at the prison. And Mm. I thought, you know, Georgine, sometimes when we read scripture, God will make us alert to what needs to be done. And when I read speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the down and outers, I realized every week we were standing in line at prison and that God opened our eyes to see what the needs were. And we launched a nonprofit organization called speakupforhope.org and we began putting games and, and coloring books in the visitation areas of the prison so children would have something to do with their incarcerated parent when they came to visit. And we started sending boxes of hope to the uh, wives and to the moms of inmates. And now the most exciting thing has happened. The first accredited Bible seminary in a prison in the state of Florida is at the prison where my son is incarcerated. And uh, there are 52 men enrolled in the seminary. And Jason said, Mom, he said, I'm not going to enroll because I was raised on the Bible and I know Scripture. And he said, men are standing in line who want to be be in the seminary, and I don't want to keep those who've never had a chance to learn from learning. And it's with the goal of putting inmate pastors in in prisons all over Florida. And I can hardly wait to see the revival that's going to come as a result of that. But one of the things people began doing is is to send gifts to our nonprofit organization that will buy reference books for men who are enrolled in the seminary. And we just see God at work 
nudging us with what we do is we read scripture and say, okay, Lord, what is the action step you want me to take based on your word in the sphere of influence where you have placed me? And that makes me excited. Mm. Now, what advice can you give others who want to represent Jesus well when they go through a very difficult personal experience that they may not fully understand, that it may still be puzzling why God would allow a particular thing? What advice would you give others? Well, I want to encourage you to be as open and vulnerable about your circumstances as possible. And you might be embarrassed about what you, what a family member has done and hope it doesn't get out in public. But I remember when I started being honest from a platform and in interviews and in personal conversations about my son's arrest, God began breaking down barriers with other people and they would share their stories. I remember one woman who attended the Bible study fellowship class that I taught and she came up to me after learning about Jason's incarceration and she said, Carol, I used to think you were perfect, but now I think we could be friends. And so many Mm. times we think we have to slap on a happy smile when our hearts are breaking. And what most people want is for us to just be the real deal and to share what's going on in our lives. After a speaking engagement uh, where I shared our journey with Jason, a woman came up to the book table and she was all hunched over. She said, my husband's been incarcerated for the last 18 years and nobody knows he's getting out next month. I said, is he coming home to live with you? She said, yes, we're going to try to make a go of it. And then she stood to her full posture and she said, today you've given me the courage to start telling my story. I'm going to quit hiding in false shame and false guilt and tell people what's happened to us. I want to give them hope the way you've given me hope. So I just want all of our listeners to be real with each other. Yes, you might be a little embarrassed when when things come out about, about your family that you're not proud of, but as you are honest, God will open the door for others to feel comfortable sharing their journeys and to Together, you can look at God's Word and find out how to live your life according to His principles. He does hold your hand, and He won't let go. Is there a scripture that influenced the title of this book, He Holds My Hand? Oh, yes, and it is the scripture from Psalm 63, 8. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. Mm. Well, again, the title of the book is He Holds My Hand, Experiencing God's Presence and Protection. Carol Kent, it is always a delight to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking the time this evening. It has been an honor to be on the air with you, Georgie, and God bless you and your wonderful radio ministry. Thank you so much. Carol Kent, author of many books, her latest, a devotional, He Holds My Hand, Experiencing God's Presence and protection. Appreciate her so much and um, would encourage you to pray for her son and take some encouragement uh, from his story. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here in just a few moments in the second hour of the program today. We're going to talk about whether or not uh, it's 1968 all over again and whether or not identity politics have won, that everyone believes that they are in one way or another discriminated against and perhaps a victim of one sort or another. We'll also talk about Kent State. They're mulling whether telling someone you need Jesus is considered a form of hate speech. That and much more here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is 
our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Victor Davis Hansen, I, I appreciate reading him uh, quite often. He wrote for Patriot Post, most often for National Review. But he points out that almost a half a century ago, in 1968, the United States seemed to be, a fa- to, seemed to be falling apart. Rather, The Vietnam War, a bitter and close presidential election, anti-war protests, racial riots, political assassinations, terrorism, and a recession looming on the horizon left the country divided between a loud radical minority and a silent conservative majority. If you do the math, that may or may not be accurate. The United States avoided a civil war, but America suffered a collective psychological depression, civil unrest, defeat in Vietnam and assorted disasters for the next decade until the election of a once polarizing Ronald Reagan ushered in five consecutive presidential terms of relative bipartisan calm and prosperity from 1981 to 2001. It appears as if 2017 might be another 1968. You see if you agree. Recent traumatic hurricanes seem to reflect the country's human turmoil. After the polarizing Obama presidency and the contested election of Donald Trump, the country is once again split in two. And that polarization predated Trump, but it certainly has accelerated since. But this time, the divide is far deeper, both ideologically and geographically, and more 50-50, with the two liberal coasts pitted against red state America in the middle. Century-old mute stone statues are torn down in the dead of night, apparently on the theory that by attacking the Confederate dead, the lives of the living might improve. All the old standbys of American life seem to be eroding. The National Football League is imploding as it devolves into a political circus. Multimillionaire players refuse to stand for the national anthem, turning off millions of fans whose former loyalties paid their salaries. Politics, or rather a progressive hatred of proactive uh, Donald Trump, permeates almost every nook and cranny of popular culture. Some are suggesting that uh, it's creating a a type of fatigue, even among those who oppose Donald Trump. The new allegiance of the media, the late-night television, standby comedy, Hollywood, professional sports and universities, are committed to liberal sermonizing. Politically correct obscenity and vulgarity among celebrities and entertainers is a substitute for talent. Even as Hollywood is racked by sexual harassment scandals and other perversities, which they popularize in entertainment media. The smears, racist, fascist, white privilege and Nazi like commie in the 1950s are so overused as to become meaningless. There is now less free speech on campus than during the McCarthy era in the early 1950s. As was the case in 1968, the world abroad is also falling apart. The European Union model of the future is unraveling. The EU has been paralyzed by the exit of Great Britain, or at least the future exit, the divide between Spain and Catalonia, the bankruptcy of the Mediterranean nation members, insidious terrorist attacks in major European cities, and the onslaught of millions of immigrants, mostly young, male, and Muslim. From the war-torn Middle East, Germany is once again becoming imperious, but this time insidiously by means other than arms. The failed state of North Korea claims that it has nuclear-tipped missiles capable of reaching America's west coast and apparently wants some sort of bribe not to launch them. Iran is likely to follow the North Korean nuclear trajectory. In the meantime, its new Shiite hegemony, hegemony rather, in the Middle East is feeding on the carcasses of Syria and Iraq. Is the chaos of 2017 a catharsis, a necessary and long overdue purge of dangerous and neglected pathologies? Will the bedlam, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> will the bedlam within the United States descend into more nihilism or offer a remedy to the status quo that had divided and nearly bankrupted the country? 
Is the problem too much democracy as the volatile and fickle mob runs roguish, uh, roughshod rather, over establishment experts and experienced bureaucrats? Or is the crisis too little democracy as populists strive to dethrone a scandal-plagued, anti-democratic, incompetent, and overrated, entrenched elite? Neither traditional political parties has any answers. Democrats are being overwhelmed by the identity politics and socialism of progressives. Republicans are torn asunder between upstart populist nationalists and the calcified establishment status quo. Yet for all the social instability and media hysteria, life in the United States quietly seems to be getting better. The economy is growing. Unemployment and inflation remain low. The stock market and middle class incomes are up. Business and consumer confidence are high. Corporate profits are up. Energy production is expanded. The border with Mexico is being enforced. Is the instability less a symptom of America, that America is falling apart and more a sign that the loud conventional wisdom of the past about the benefits of a globalized economy, the insignificance of national borders and the importance of identity politics is drawing to a close along with the careers of those who profited from it in the past? Any crisis that did not destroy the United States ended up making it better. But for now, the fight grows over which is more toxic, the chronic statist malady that is, is eating away at the country or the new populist medicine deemed necessary to cure it. It is yet an unanswered question, but a question nonetheless. And then there's this. Just how far off the deep end has the country gone in terms of identity politics? Far enough that pretty much everyone now thinks he or she is being discriminated against. And that's the finding of a new survey, at least. And it is deeply dispiriting. Now, it's important to make the point because when real discrimination of uh, varying sorts actually occurs, these uh, broad uh, alleged discriminations uh, somehow suck the vitality and the validity out of what's actually occurring. Well, the poll by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard School of Public Health, was taken over the span of four months and includes responses from more than 3,400 people across the country. What it found was that the majority, a majority of those in each of six different race and sexual orientation categories say that people in their groups are discriminated against. That includes blacks, 92% of whom say they're discriminated against, LGBTQ people, 90%, Latinos, 78 percent, Native Americans, 75 percent, Asians, 61 percent and whites, 55 percent. The good news, if there is any to be found in this survey, is that for most people, uh, for the most part, people don't think that government policies or laws are the principal cause of discrimination. For example, 49 percent of blacks who say they suffer discrimination say that it's a result of prejudices of individuals, which the state cannot manage, while 25 percent say it's because of government policies. The survey didn't ask about other groups, but it likely would find the same result. Public Religion Research Institute asked religious groups if they felt discriminated against and found that 57 percent of white evangelicals believe that Christians are discriminated against in the United States. Uh, Overall, 66 percent of Americans say Muslims face discrimination. Fifty seven percent of women say the country hasn't done enough to ensure equal rights for women, according to the Pew Research Center. A similar percentage of smokers, 56 percent, feel that they are discriminated against, at least occasionally, according to Gallup. We couldn't find a survey asking short people if they felt discriminated against, although they have a better case to make than a lot of other groups. One study found that men's chances of working in a high status job increase 12 percent and their earnings climb to an average of uh, $1,611 for each 2.5 inches of extra height. Another study found that men's uh, future wages could be linked to their height 
at age 16. Want more evidence of rampant heightism? Fewer than 3% of CEOs are short, while 90% are average or above average height. Uh, Just 14 U.S. presidents were under 5'10", and only two of those, Jimmy Carter and Harry uh, Truman, were elected in the past 120 years. Countless idioms reinforce negative stereotypes about stature, short shrifted, coming uh, coming up short, a day late and a dollar. Yeah, short. Short end of the stick, drawing the short straw, etc. What's surprising is that the differently statured, as they're now referred to, haven't risen up, so to speak, to claim their rightful status as an aggrieved group. Just to be clear, no, we're not advocating that. There's no doubt that discrimination exists when in the history of mankind has it not. But America was founded on the idea that the primacy of the individual and that government policies would aim to protect the rights of the individuals rather than groups. Now, the problem with identity politics is that it moves the country in the opposite direction, fueling resentment and mistrust, forcing stricter conformity within groups and creating an insatiable demand for special treatment based on membership to one of those groups, one or another. It's a dead-end road, which is perhaps why the nation's motto is E Pluribus Unum and not the other way around. An interesting observation. We're going to take a quick break. It's about 15 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll let you know about a Christian uh, student, Christian leader, who's demanding an apology after a poster distributed at the uh, university uh, suggested that saying, you need Jesus, could qualify as hate speech. Where's the culture headed? We'll take a look. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Christian student leader is demanding an apology after a poster distributed by Kent State University asked if stating you need Jesus could qualify as hate speech. Well, the public university's Center for Student Involvement created and circulated the poster on Twitter last week. It was designed to promote an event on free speech issues as part of Kent State's Kent Talks, uh, which was intended to provide a safe place for discussions and transformational experiences for our student body and promote civil discourse. Well, silhouetted activists on the poster hold a range of placards with messages overlaid with the rhetorical question, free speech or hate speech? Alongside provocative expressions include no more gays, women need to serve their man, and build a wall. The fourth placard bears a nonviolent basic expression of the Christian faith, you need Jesus. Well, Jared Small, president of the Campus Ministry International Student Organization, told the College Fix that the poster was inappropriate. The university should apologize because it appears to be targeted toward one political and religious side, he wrote in an email. They could have included hate speech against President Trump or hate speech against Christians as examples. In my opinion, free speech protects hate speech to an extent. However, the university appears to show a bias against Christians and conservatives. Well, Professor Amy Reynolds, the dean of Kent State's College Communication and Information, moderated last week's Kent Talks uh, panel discussion on free speech. And she told the local paper, The Fix, in an email that she had no involvement in creating the poster for the event. The Center for Student Involvement created all of the promotional materials. I'm not sure what the process is or was. Neither Eric Mansfield nor Emily Vincent, the executive director and director of Kent State Media Relations, responded to repeated fix queries, the local paper again, the campus paper. Neither did uh, Kristen Dolan nor Rick Dannels, assistant director and assistant dean of the Center for Student Involvement. Nobody wants to be told you're going to hell. 
Well, Jacob Brown, president of the Catholic Student Association, implied the posters were likely to refer to the hellfire preachers who visit campus twice or so each year. Uh, Do I think it constitutes hate speech? No. Should the university apologize? No, he told The Fix in an email. Nobody wants to be told. Well, that's where they're going. As a leader of religious uh, student organization, I put my face in my palm every day. I see this religious protest, which echoes the zealousness of Jesus in challenging the money changers in the temple, but also comes across as tasteless and without empathy. Well, Brown, and that's a quote from the uh, John, rather Jacob Brown, the president of the Catholic Student Association. Well, Brown urged students to understand the intentions of the protesting preachers, even if their message delivered is controversial. They share this with you because they believe it is in your best interest, he said. I feel few students stop to consider this perspective. Well, Christian students should also welcome the challenge of responding to those who accuse them of hate speech. Because a person's convictions are useless in a vacuum, Brown continued, sharing your ideas with those who agree with you isn't testing validity. It's just increasing popularity. Embrace the trial by fire, he says. Well, notably absent from the potential hate speech slogans on the poster is a prominent example from Kent State's recent history. In 2011, an associate professor of history, Julio Cesar Peño, Uh, drew condemnation from campus leaders, students, and faculty when he shouted death to Israel at a Muslim-Israeli diplomat. Um, uh, His name was Ismail Khalidi, who was speaking on campus. That was not mentioned, um, but other um, subjects were and have been and will be debated on campus there. Hate speech. You need Jesus. Well, David Delayden and his uh, controversial Center for Medical Progress released the first in yet another series of revealing videos about the abortion industry today. This time it takes a new angle. How did Planned Parenthood procure baby body parts? Uh, Who worked with Planned Parenthood to procure these parts and why? Well, first day at STEM Express inside Planned Parenthood, as it's called, shows a conversation between Delighton and Holly O'Donnell, a former STEM Express employee, recounting her first day on the job, which included examining aborted baby parts. STEM Express is the biomedical company that installed employees at Planned Parenthood clinics and paid per specimen for human parts obtained there. O'Donnell's uh, whistleblower testimony and eyewitness experience corroborates Planned Parenthood's many violations of federal law, which CMP Uh, Again, the Center for Medical Progress revealed in previous undercover videos and which the House Select Panel and Senate Judicial uh, Judiciary Committee uncovered in their recent investigations. Well, in the video, O'Donnell describes her first day working for STEM Express inside Planned Parenthood clinics. She didn't uh, know the details of her job. And the first thing her employer showed her was a clear pie dish full of uh, products of conception or POC, as they refer to it, including baby parts. Uh, and blood. She uh, she's showing me parts of this is a leg. This is an arm. And then she says, put some gloves on. So I put the gloves on. She hands me a tweezer and she goes, oh, can you show me some of the parts I just showed you? I said, yes. And I put the tweezers in and I put um, put it on one of the limbs. And I've never felt this in my life. I felt the pain radiate through my hand. She says, you can feel the death go up. Uh, it was something that uh, was just alive, and I grabbed it, and I felt that, and I started to get woozy, end quote. Well, critics of the video are likely to either discount the eyewitness testimony as a he-said-she-said scenario, despite her story corroborating the previous undercover videos Delighton released, or shrug off Stim Express's uh, involvement as merely medical research. 
Still, according to the Center for Medical uh, Progress a press release, uh, Stem Express is a major supplier of aborted fetal ba- uh, body parts for experimental uh, use and has been a key subject of interest in the undercover footage. Planned Parenthood's senior director of medical services mentioned the company as a catalyst for Planned Parenthood Federation of America to try to connect more affiliates to fetal tissue sales. And Stem Express founder Kate Dyer and Stem Express uh, said rather Stem Express needed another 50 livers a week from abortion clinics to sell to customers. Customers calling Planned Parenthood's volume uh, a volume institution, and it certainly is that. Uh, Stem Express sued um, the Center for Medical Progress and sought to, a gag order to block the release of the undercover footage, but a judge declined that request. The press release notes that after investigations into Planned Parenthood and Stem Express, two congressional committees referred Stem Express along with the business partners Planned Parenthood uh, Mar Monty, Planned Parenthood Northern California, and Planned Parenthood Federation of America to the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice for further investigation and criminal prosecution. Over the summer, the FBI FBI confirmed that the criminal referrals have been sent to multiple field offices for action. Well, the Center for Medical Progress includes the PDF of O'Donnell's uh, offer letter from Stem Express and the procurement documents or log from her very first day on the job where she procured several vials of blood. Holly O'Donnell is a brave whistleblower who witnessed shocking violations of the law, medical ethics and human dignity inside of Planned Parenthood and Stem Express, Delighton. Uh, says CP- CMP's undercover work was directly informed by the real life business relationship between Stem Express and Planned Parenthood to sell aborted baby parts. And Holly's testimony corroborates the reports of the House Select Panel and the Senate Judiciary Committee investigations. We look forward to Holly's experiences reaching the public through this new format in the weeks ahead. As I mentioned, this is the the uh, the release of the first of a series of videos having to do with this ongoing expose that has led at least to a call for an investigation. The FBI has given uh, the investigation to its um, operatives, and presumably they are looking into the matter. What that means isn't entirely clear, but um, that's the procedure that they that they use. Alexandra DeSantis um, points out that uh, it's time to pop the champagne. At least uh, that's what the ACLU is declaring a victory over this morning, announcing that justice has prevailed for Jane Doe, an illegal immigrant minor in U.S. custody who has received the abortion procedure she requested. Well, this is what our most powerful public voices choose to celebrate, that a minor has finally been permitted to execute her innocent unborn child. But we're being asked to do more than simply dance on the child's grave. We're told to call it justice. Jane Doe has been the favored victim of the left for the last week or so. She's a 17-year-old undocumented immigrant currently being held in a U.S. detention center. She also happens to be pregnant, or she was until this morning. We have been told that this young woman has... uh, to this point, been cruelly forced to carry her pregnancy to term, deprived of autonomy and her civil rights by the evil pro-life Trump administration. Feminist writer Jill uh, Filipovich uh, informed us on Monday that the situation was even more dire than we might think. If the pro-life forces currently forcing Jane to continue her pregnancy against her will have their way, we will all be Jane Doe's, she writes, not human beings deciding what goes on in our own uteruses, but incubators of a myopic and misogynist dogma. Wow. Not human beings deciding what goes on in our own uteruses, which is decided, of course, long before you're even aware 
that there's a pregnancy, but incubators of a myopic and misogynist dogma, also known as mothers who carry their children to term. Measured dialogue indeed. Meanwhile, New York uh, Attorney uh, General Eric Schneidermeyer announced that he would uh, lead 14 state attorneys general in support of Jane's abortion rights by filing an amicus brief with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, where her case was being considered. She uh, sued for the right to uh, leave the detention facility where she was being held so that she could obtain that abortion. The court ended up deciding in Jane's favor yesterday, allowing her to receive the abortion procedure this morning. More on that in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I was mentioning that um, the ACLU is declaring victory this morning, announcing that justice has prevailed for Jane Doe, an illegal immigrant minor in the United States uh, in custody who had received the abortion procedure she requested. Well, the debacle ended in the worst possible way with the death of an unborn child. And in the process of this ugly debate and in the wake of its sad conclusion, we have once again been exposed to the abhorrent beliefs lurking beneath the pleasant exterior of so many in the pro-abortion movement. The movement has claimed for decades to be respectably moderate, but truthfully dislike abortion, to want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, to support reasonable abortion restrictions and limitations. But the reaction to uh, Jane's abortion campaign shows that all of that, all those claims are nothing more than empty posturing designed to disguise a hideous truth that unlimited abortion on demand is seen not only as the policy goal, but as the fullest expression of true freedom and justice. It is a a sad sad thing uh, to me to consider Uh, But that is precisely where we are. And then there's this out of the UK. The phrase pregnant woman needs to be more inclusive and termed pregnant people in the UN treaty. The British government announced the British uh, government suggestion on proposed amendments to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights claims that wording excludes pregnant transgender people. Now, if a transgender person is having a baby, that transgender person is biologically female. So I suppose saying pregnant woman still applies whether or not you're wearing pants. Well, the treaty says pregnant woman, uh, women rather, are protected and not subject to the death penalty. The current terminology excludes transgender people who have given birth, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office claims. We requested that the UN Human Rights Committee made it clear that the same right extends to pregnant transgender people, Foreign and Commonwealth Office officials told the Times. There are two transgender men on record in the UK who have given birth after having a sex change. Well, obviously, these are women who had uteruses and all the other parts. They uh, they wanted to become men, but were able to become uh, pregnant because even though you may dress and uh, take the pills and all of that, you are still biologically a female and capable of carrying a child. The biological women kept their womb and ovaries during the change, according to the Sunday report. So they are biologically women. Some feminists are not happy about the terminology. This isn't inclusion. This is making women unmentionable, said one prominent uh, feminist writer, Sarah Didham. Having a female body and knowing what that means for reproduction doesn't make you exclusionary, forcing us to um, decorously scrub out any reference to our sex on pain of being called bigots is an insult. Now, this she's applying to this very narrow situation, but it certainly applies more broadly as we are being forced to deny what to science and biology tells us is truth. Well, the, the British government is also considering removing a census question that asks citizens to identify gender and biological sex on a 2021 census. 
the Foreign and Commonwealth Office comments uh, come from uh, come after rather Prime Minister Theresa May announced last week that the Gender Recognition Act will likely soon be amended to let people change genders without a doctor's approval. It will be very confusing, but apparently that's the direction the UK is going, and I would imagine we're not too far behind. And then there's this. An alarming study released today found many baby food products test positive for arsenic, including 80% of infant formulas, and that's not the only dangerous contaminant found. I want to just uh, pause for a moment and offer a, a uh, a bit of a caution. We often hear in popular media that uh, apples, for example, we were told at one point were uh, were dangerous for us to eat. So while the media isn't very good at reporting accurately scientific findings, uh, I would just put the asterisk, uh, wait for the other shoe to drop, because it's very possible that this is a misinterpretation or an overstatement or a misunderstanding. But what the report is saying is the Clean Label Project, a nonprofit advocating for transparent laboring, Uh, Labeling, rather, tested baby food, infant formulas, toddler drinks and snacks purchased within the last five months. The group looked at top selling formulas and baby food using Nielsen data and also including emerging national brands. And after about 530 baby food products were tested, researchers found 65 percent of the products tested positive for arsenic, 36 percent for lead, 58 percent for cadmium, 10 percent for acrylamide, uh, all of these chemicals pose potential dangers to developing infants. Now, we know the percentage of products that had it, what percentage within the products is is not uh, clear. Jennifer Lowry, a pediatrician and toxicologist at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, who's not affiliated with the research, said this chem- these chemicals rather can affect the motor skills and cognition. Mainstream brands including Gerber, Infamil, uh, Plum Organics, and Sprout were among those uh, the worst offenders, apparently, scoring uh, two out of five of the Clean Label Project's report card for toxic. Toxic metals. Plus, 60% of products claiming to be BPA-free tested positive for the industrial chemical um, uh, uh, prod- byproduct. The quantities of contaminants range, but some products tested positive for up to 600 parts of arsenic per billion. Uh, that's far more than just trace amounts. Well, arsenic was the most common contaminant spotted in the Clean Label Project study. Nearly 80% of infant formula samples tested positive for arsenic. The toxin is associated with developmental defects, cardiovascular disease, neurotoxicity, diabetes, and even cancer, according to the World Health Organization. The executive director of the Clean Label Product, or Project, rather, and a food safety scientist said uh, rice-based baby foods such as snack puffs had some of the highest levels of arsenic. In 2016, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration proposed a limit of 100 parts per billion of arsenic in infant rice cereal, uh, but isn't enforcing that limit. Rice often absorbs arsenic from contaminated soil as it uh, grows in the environment, so it's not being added, it's uh, environmental. It is important for consumers to understand that some contaminants, such as heavy metals like lead and arsenic, are in the environment and cannot simply be removed from the food, said the FDA spokesperson. Lead also found in food tested by the Clean Label Project has been found in baby food before. Just a few months ago, the Environmental Defense Fund found uh, 20% of 2,164 baby food samples tested contaminated lead. No amount of lead is safe, but it's uh, not regulated, so the amounts that you might find 
uh, can, in fact, vary. Low levels of lead in children's blood have been uh, connected with lower IQs, slowed growth, behavioral problems, hearing issues, and anemia, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. The Clean Label Project posted a list of products it tested, along with a uh, star rating uh, grade uh, informed by the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment on its website, cleanlabelproject.org. Um, Bowen said that she hopes that the data helps parents become better advocates for their children's health and uh, creates change in the baby food uh, industry. The baby industry needs to do a better job of protecting America's most vulnerable population, she says. How you go about that uh, is not clear, given the fact that uh, much of this is environmental. For the rice, for example, it's in the soil. And I'm not sure it's possible to, uh, if there's some process available that makes it possible to remove that from uh, from the soil or from the product. So it's not, not clear what can be done about it, but that's what the report um, has yielded. Uh, we're going to take a break in just a moment, but uh, when we return, we're going to talk about North Korea. And there's one man who managed to escape from one of the most notorious camps there, where he talks about what Christians are enduring for the sole reason that they are followers of Christ. They're considered, as has been the case in many countries, to be enemies of the state if they hold to a, uh, a Christian worldview and the, the belief by the Kim Jong-un um, administration, for lack of a better way of describing it, is that any, um, any deviation from the state is a threat uh, to his power. So we're going to talk a bit about this um, uh, this defector from uh, North Korea who said, described his life as life in hell for Christians, um, giving us uh, once again a glimpse into the challenges that believers face in various parts of the world, North Korea perhaps being one of the worst, um, but other places as well. As we remember persecuted Christians, we pray for them. Uh, we try to support organizations uh, that support them um, and do what we can to try to influence public policy when that's possible um, to shine a very bright light on the the challenge. Also want to remind you, KPDQ is giving away nearly 100 tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. You can go to kpdq.com to enter to win a four-pack of tickets to a special 2 p.m. performance on Saturday, November the 25th, at the Keller Auditorium. The Portland Singing Christmas Tree is celebrating its 55th season. Again, go to kpdq.com to find out more and how you can win. 100 tickets are being given away. Family four-pack at a time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Wednesday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, from time to time, I like to uh, share stories of Christians who, for the sole reason of uh, holding fast to their profession of faith, they are persecuted, and this, this next story is out of North Korea, a defector who had an opportunity to, uh, to escape and did. He describes what he calls life, a life of hell for Christians in North Korea. I suppose this isn't altogether surprising, but to hear it directly from someone who lived that life and escaped is rare indeed. Uh, North Korean Chao Kwang-hyuk uh, is one of the lucky ones, the article uh, points out that the 55-year-old managed to escape from the work camp where he was he was sent after being targeted and persecuted by the government for his Christian faith. That was the reason behind his imprisonment. We couldn't raise our voice during a service. We couldn't sing out loud during worship. 
That was hard. Now he's talking about in the prison. Now, the thing that struck me was that he is in a North Korean prison and yet they were holding services and were worshiping. Now, I think that strips every excuse we might come up with uh, for shaking our fist at God when uh, things don't go quite our way. Despite having to hide his faith in plain sight while living in North uh, Hamyong uh, uh, province, Choi, who still um, is still compelled to bring religion to others when he started an underground church. There were about nine people, he said. I couldn't do mission work because we had to keep it secret that we had a church. If that information had leaked, we could have faced the death penalty. Well, North Korea is officially an atheist state where, except for a show uh, church in Pyongyang, what tourists are shown, public worship is altogether forbidden. The country is ranked the most oppressive place for Christians in the world and has had the ignominious uh, status this year, according to Open Doors USA. A choice statement describing oppression as well as his report of imprisonment for owning a Bible or practicing faith align with everything we know about North Korea. Open Doors President David Curry told Fox News rated the worst place for the persecution of Christians. North Korea treats Christians um, horrendously and registers them as enemies of the state for their faith. The totalitarian state forces an estimated 300,000 Christians living there to hide their religious beliefs and fellowship among each other. In a nation where the ruling regime demands total control over the general public, anything that challenges the government's power is seen as a threat, including religion. Jeff King, president of the International Christian Concern, also told Fox News, as a result, the North Korean government does everything in its power to squash the spread of Christianity. Uh, This leads much of the religious population in North Korea to go underground with their worship, much like Choi and his church were forced to. We had only one Bible, he said. North uh, Hamgyong province is very cold in the winter. We would dig a big hole and store uh, kimchi there. We'd sometimes have service there. In the summer, we had services in the mountains or by the river. So they would travel someplace out of town in order to gather for fellowship, prayer and worship. The life in North Korea is hell, he says. The life in America is heaven. I wonder if we appreciate that. I never heard the term underground church until I got here in the United States, Choi says. In 2008, North Korean authorities caught up with Choi and arrested him. He was held in prison by the state security department where he says he was interrogated about his faith. I was tortured there. I kept de- uh, I kept denying it, he said. He said that he was about to be sent to one of North Korea's brutal labor camps when he was able to break free. I decided to escape because I thought that once they sent me to the other camp, uh, they could eventually send me to the concentration camp or kill me, he recalled. I was traveling back and forth between China and North Korea, but they kept searching for me, and I knew it could um, it could put my friends in danger, too, so I left. The North Korean gulag system is notorious for harsh conditions and brutal treatment of its prisoners. Choi feared being sent to the most notorious camp within the system, Camp 22, also known uh, as the concentration camp and part of a large system of prison camps throughout the communist dictatorship. Camp 22 is an 87-square-mile penal colony located in North Hamgyong province, where most of the prisoners are people accused of criticizing the government. Inmates, most of whom are serving life sentences, face harsh and often lethal conditions. According to the testimony of a former guard from Camp 22, prisoners live in bunkhouses with 100 people per room and some 30 percent show the markings of torture and beatings, torn ears, gouged eyes and faces covered with scars. 
Unfortunately, it is explicitly easy to wind up in one of these camps. While someone can be sent to one of these uh, camps for openly evangelizing, someone can just as easily be sent to them uh, simply by being in contact with religious person, the king, the international, um, said king rather, of the International Christian Coalition. Prisoners are forced to stand on their toes uh, in tanks filled with water up to their uh, noses for 24 hours stripped and hanged upside down while being beaten or given the infamous pigeon torture where both hands are chained to a wall at the height of two feet, forcing them to crouch for hours at a time. Tiny rations of water, corn porridge leave inmates uh, on the brink of starvation and many hunt rats, snakes, frogs for protein. Some even take the drastic measure of searching through animal dung for undigested seeds to eat. Beatings are handed out daily for offenders as simple as um, offenses, rather, as simple as not bowing down in respect to the guards uh, fast enough. Prisoners are used as practice targets during martial arts training. Guards routinely rape female inmates. Choi said that he finally escaped the um, neighboring to neighboring China while he was figuring out where to go next. He had heard how the uh, the uh, general image of North Korea defectors was not positive among those in South Korea. So he applied for asylum to the United States. Choi, who was single when he lived in North Korea, was granted asylum to the United States in 2013. He first lived in Dallas before eventually moving to Los Angeles, where he now lives. He said that as a result of injuries he received while being tortured, uh, he is unable to work but has committed himself to telling the world about the human rights abuses in his native land. First of all, every human must have the right to freedom, he said. There is no freedom in North Korea. By law, they have the freedom of religion and the freedom of the press, but the reality is very different. And despite the hardships he may face, Choi says that life in the United States is a vast improvement. There is an enormous difference between my life in North Korea and my life in the United States. Again, he says the life in North Korea is hell, life in America, heaven. Just one example of many hundreds of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of stories of those persecuted around the world for their Christian faith. And uh, Mr. Choi has committed himself to telling that story and the stories of many others who at this very moment are suffering a similar fate. He mentioned Camp 22 as you're praying for North Korea. And if you want to be a little more specific, pray for those who are held in the most notorious Camp 22 in North Korea. And remember the persecuted church. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Matt Stanford. He is the author of Grace for the Afflicted, a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness. And don't we need to have a clear understanding of uh, what mental illness is and what we as followers of Christ can learn from Scripture about uh, how we are to respond uh, to that particular malady? So I'm looking forward to talking with Matt Stanford about that tomorrow. And then on Friday, assuming there is uh, no breaking news, which, of course, we will uh, go to in the event that uh, it does happen. We're going to spend the uh, the day focusing on the lighter side of the news, things we don't normally cover during the course of a regular week here on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.